You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. The land along Virginia's coastline had long been settled by the 18th century, but the territory west of that, along the Blue Ridge and Piedmont, was a different story. Even centuries later, those rolling hills and valleys remained largely uninhabited. The British government took notice when the French began to colonize the Ohio Valley. If the territory became exclusively French, their British settlements would be limited to the region east of the Appalachian Mountains. To aid in the British colonization of unappropriated lands, the Virginia Council and Governor made land grants, some of which were quite large. Colonist John Lewis headed up the Loyal Company of Virginia, a survey company that secured one of the governor's grants on July 12th of 1748. The Loyal Company was granted over 800,000 acres surrounding the Virginia and North Carolina area and ran westward to present-day Kentucky. Essentially, the company enticed settlers to purchase land. It goes without saying that neither the French nor the British consulted the indigenous people regarding this land grab. The grant and the company were quite the endeavor, but John had help. His neighbors, Peter and Joshua, as well as friends Thomas Walker and Thomas Merriweather, were also loyal company grant recipients. When John secured the grant, he appointed Thomas Walker as an agent and sent him and several other men westward to explore potential land acquisitions. The loyal company wasn't the only business surveying and selling land, though, and got into conflict with another surveying business, the Ohio Company. The Loyal Company began advertising, promising settlers cheap land. They offered buyers the option of reasonable payments. Squatters were forced to pay the Loyal Company's asking price. Before Thomas Walker and a few of the other men set out to survey parts of eastern Kentucky, Peter made a name for himself through another more notable expedition. Peter's reputation as a skilled surveyor had long preceded him. He had come from a family who owned considerable property near present-day Richmond, Virginia. 
In addition to his skills and intelligence, his physical strength and endurance were about to be tested. Peter had teamed up with another surveyor, Joshua Fry, in 1746 to mark off property owned by Lord Fairfax. The uncharted territory across the state proved to be quite a dangerous adventure. The pair first headed south, marking the dividing line between Virginia and North Carolina. The terrain across the Blue Ridge Mountains was treacherous, and reportedly the men fought off attacks from local wildlife. At night, the pair had to sleep in trees for safety. Their expedition led Lewis Burwell, Virginia's acting governor, to commission the men to create a map of the region in 1750. The governor worried that the French were potentially encroaching on British territory, and the surveyor's previous expedition and detailed material made them the most logical choice. Peter and Joshua worked tirelessly on the map printed in 1751. In the following years, the map's accuracy benefited British generals during the Seven Years' War. Four copperplate engravings were made of the map, making it Virginia's most significant map of its day. And most importantly, the map would be used decades later in 1781 by Peter's son Thomas as part of a book that he would write called Notes on the State of Virginia. And what was Peter's son's full name? Thomas Jefferson. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to the Wild West. From Alaska and parts of Canada and throughout the lower 48 states, the indigenous peoples lived independently, each self-supporting. They built homes or followed the migration of animals. They formed their own systems of government and trade. Whatever foods or products they traded, most indigenous people valued one thing above all, their land. And other countries agreed. Europeans first began to set up colonies shortly after Christopher Columbus's journey and the Spanish conquistador Hernando de Soto arrived in search of gold in the mid-16th century, ordering the slaughter of any tribe thought to be hiding gold. Meanwhile, the French began to settle in the territories from Canada down to what is present-day Louisiana. The first English attempts at settlements in 1585, and again two years later during the Roanoke colony, failed. The English first found success in 1607 with Jamestown, Virginia. However, survival wouldn't have been possible without the help from local indigenous tribes. Further north, England established a colony at Plymouth in 1620, with assistance from the native peoples. More Europeans arrived, all looking to seize land from local tribes. Although Native Americans fought to keep their land, the onslaught of immigrants and the diseases that they brought forced them further into the nation's interior. While England began colonizing the New World's eastern regions, the French kept busy with the interior. Although we think of the English settlements taking over much of present-day America, in the mid-18th century, France controlled more U.S. territory than England or Spain. On April 9th of 1682, French explorer Robert Cavalier stood before a group of Native Americans and announced that their land now belonged to King Louis XIV and named the region Louisiana after the French monarch. Later in 1718, Jean-Baptiste Le Moyne founded Nouvelle-Orléans in honor of Prince Philippe, Regent of France and the Duke of Orléans. The French and Indian War brought changes in land rights, and France surrendered the Louisiana Territory west of the Mississippi to Spain in 1762, and the rest to Great Britain a year later. To Thomas Jefferson, the western frontier held great potential. 
Jefferson shared his father's love of exploration and land. And like his father, Jefferson had extensive knowledge of American territory. In fact, in 1779, while still Virginia's governor, he attempted to strike a deal with the Spanish for land access in Louisiana. While the deal failed, Jefferson kept his eye on the prize, the port city of New Orleans. During his rise to power in 1799, Napoleon sought to reestablish France in America. In 1800, Spain quietly exchanged land in Italy for Louisiana. Jefferson feared that Napoleon would cut off access to the Mississippi River and the port city. By 1801, Jefferson had become the nation's third president. What lay beyond a 50-mile westward radius from most settlements remained mostly unknown, though. In his inaugural address, Jefferson promised to change that. In support of his belief that God had given men land to explore and tame, Jefferson offered George Rogers Clark funding to explore the Western Territory. Clark declined, but suggested that his brother William might be up to the task instead. When Spain's King Charles IV officially signed over Louisiana in 1802, tensions between the U.S. and France escalated. U.S. rights to the ports expired, risking large amounts of goods, as Jefferson feared. Frontiersmen suggested taking Louisiana by force. Instead, an opportunity presented itself. You see, years earlier, in 1791, a revolt in Sandamanga among the enslaved people there started a domino effect forcing France to abolish slavery to stem the violence. It didn't work, though. Before long, enslaved people took over and more revolts in French-owned territories followed. When winter weather thwarted Napoleon's plans to send troops from the Netherlands to New Orleans in 1803, Jefferson offered to buy the city. To his surprise, the French gave him the opportunity to buy the entire Louisiana Territory, from Canada to the Rocky Mountains and south from the Mississippi River. While France had plenty of reasons, Jefferson didn't ponder them too much. He had been granted $9 million to make the deal, hardly close to the $22 million asking price. Through negotiations, the agreed price was dropped to $15 million. Jefferson accepted without Washington's approval. While some approved of Jefferson overstepping his bounds, others did not. On May 2nd of 1803, France and the U.S. signed the deal and backdated it to April 30th, though the U.S. wouldn't take over until later that year. The day was bright and sunny on December 12th of 1803 in New Orleans' main square. Officials lowered the French tricolor and hoisted the American flag. Throughout the port, people cheered. Meanwhile, though, French politician Pierre Clément de Lassat stood on the balcony at the town hall and quietly wept. Go West. It's a phrase we've often heard. And even before the Louisiana Purchase, Jefferson had his mind set on sending explorers on an expedition to the Pacific. He wrote Congress on January 18th of 1803, asking for $2,500 for the Corps of Discovery. The purpose, he explained, would be to establish trade with the indigenous tribes and to see if a water route to the Pacific Ocean existed. Congress approved the expedition in February of 1803. Jefferson wrote his secretary, Meriwether Lewis, four months later, asking him to lead the expedition. Lewis had served with the militia during the Whiskey Rebellion. Before becoming Jefferson's secretary at the age of 27, he had risen to the rank of captain in the army. Although he was born in Virginia, Lewis spent most of his youth in Georgia, where he had learned to hunt. 
Jefferson asked Lewis to document everything, from plants and animals to the soil, weather, and topography, and the indigenous people that they encountered. To prepare, Lewis studied under the nation's top scientists in Philadelphia. He also visited Harper's Ferry to stock up on rifles, ammunition, and other supplies that Jefferson thought necessary for the journey. While the supplies were shipped to Philadelphia, Lewis began selecting recruits to join him. He chose William Clark to be his partner and sent him a letter on June 19th. In addition to his military record, Clark excelled at making maps. Lewis explained that their journey would take them well outside of U.S. territory, although France and Great Britain had granted them a passport. Lewis planned to start from the mouth of the Mississippi River. The journey wouldn't be easy, though. The river current was swift, and downed logs submerged under the surface might capsize boats. Every observation and every recording must be cared for and protected. Jefferson orders included that they were to treat all indigenous tribes with courtesy and friendliness. He supplied Lewis with smallpox vaccines to give to the tribes. On July 18th, Clark replied, accepting Lewis's request. Clark was also a native Virginian, although his family had moved to Kentucky when he was a teenager. During the summer, Lewis had a custom boat made to accommodate the crew. Construction took longer than expected, but on August 31st, Lewis and a crew of 11 set off down the Ohio River. After overcoming some initial difficulties, they arrived in Clarksville, Indiana on October 14th, where Clark and an additional nine men joined them. And if that coincidence of names, Clark and Clarksville, makes you curious, yes, the place was named after a Clark, William Clark's brother, George Rogers Clark, the man responsible for William's involvement in the first place. It seems maybe they were looking for a poetic start to their journey. Two months later, the team arrived in St. Louis. The men spent the winter recruiting and training others, growing the Corps of Discovery to over 70 people. On May 14th of 1804, after gathering additional supplies, the Corps headed up the Missouri River on their custom keelboats and additional canoes. Strong currents, insects, and heat made for a slow and uncomfortable start. Lewis and Clark journaled everything, too, naming streams, animals, and plants along the way. Every morning, hunters searched for food, and while Lewis walked the shoreline documenting what he found, Clark stayed on the boat. Over the course of the expedition, Lewis and Clark met with and took counsel with about 50 different local tribes. To establish goodwill, Lewis and Clark presented the tribe's leader with a Jefferson Indian Peace Medal and offered to trade goods. Interestingly enough, they also informed the tribes that America owned their lands and, in a show of peace, offered military protection. In late September, they traveled through Sioux Territory in what is now Pierre, South Dakota. Lewis and Clark knew that the tensions between the Sioux and the settlers were high, as well as with another neighboring tribe. At first, their interactions did not go well, but in the end, they shared a meal and stories before traveling on. When the frost began to appear with regularity and the nights grew cooler, the men built a fort for the winter just north of present-day Bismarck, North Dakota, and nearby lived two notable Native American tribes, the Mandan and the Hidatsa. The two coexisted peacefully. During their more than 150-day residency at the camp that they named Fort Mandan, they met Sheheke, a member of the Mandan tribe. Much of the survival of the Corps is owed to him. Although white settlers had brought smallpox to the area and wiped out a significant amount of his tribe, he still offered his assistance, even providing them with a map. But the Mandan, of course, weren't the only Native Americans to help Lewis and Clark. 
The expedition westward meant crossing the Rocky Mountains, and without the help of the Shoshone, the trip would be impossible. Fortunately for Lewis and Clark, they met Toussaint Charbonneau, a trapper and fur trader who had two Shoshone wives. One of Charbonneau's wives was a teenage Shoshone girl named Sacagawea. In February of 1805, Sacagawea gave birth to a little boy named Jean-Baptiste. Lewis and Clark learned that she had come to live with the Hidatsas when she was a child. Her tribe had traveled from the area of Colorado. The Hidatsa attacked, taking the women and children with them. With the snow and ice melting in the spring of 1805, Lewis and Clark sent some of the party back to St. Louis with a variety of soil samples, artifacts, seeds, and small animals. The remainder of the camp, including the addition of Charbonneau, Sacagawea, and their infant son, began their journey west. Lewis journaled new plants and animal specimens, including grizzly bears, which they hunted, until a few of the bears hunted back, that is. On June 13th, they came to the Great Falls. Lewis wrote that the rapids made crossing at that point impossible, forcing them to continue on foot for 18 miles. And as you'd imagine, carrying the supplies was backbreaking. Mosquitoes and rattlesnakes were plentiful, and the hunters had to contend with those grizzly bears when they were out foraging for food. In late July, they reached the location on the map marked Three Forks of the Missouri River. They took a few days to rest in late July before setting off toward the Continental Divide along the deepest of the three streams. At one point, Sacagawea recognized a landmark from her childhood. This was good news to Lewis. He was anxious to meet the Shoshone. If they were to cross the mountains before winter, they needed horses. But the first Shoshone man they met was spooked and ran off, fearing that they were the Hidatsa or some other tribe who might attack them. It was August 12th when Lewis stood at the Lemhi Pass. Instead of plains, mountains as far as the eye could see greeted him. The view was a thing of beauty, but they needed horses now more than ever. Luckily, the very next day, the group came upon a few Shoshones. Lewis did his best to show them that he meant no harm. The Shoshone agreed to bring the travelers to their village. They were met with warriors, but again, Lewis managed to calm their fears. Suspicions arose the next day when Lewis pushed them for horses. Fortunately, Sacagawea was the chief's sister and managed to negotiate the sale of some of the tribe's horses. Lewis listened to the Shoshone's advice about their route to the Colorado River. These sheer cliffs and rapids would be more than just treacherous. The Shoshone advised against the route, although they did provide Lewis and Clark with a guide to help them over the mountain range. Old Toby, as the Shoshone called him, didn't lead the expedition party over the easiest terrain, though. Instead, he took them due north over the rugged Bitterroot Range. From there, he led them through a pass along the Continental Divide, where they met the Salish, a tribe similar to the Shoshone. Lewis and Clark attained more horses and supplies from them. While they rested for a few days, Lewis and Clark also learned that the river leading to the ocean was a five-day journey through the Bitterroot Range. The Corps set out on September 11th of 1805. Instead of five days, the journey took them 11. The descent down the range was difficult on the best of days, but winter had come early, and the snow was deep. One of the horses carrying supplies lost its footing and fell to its death. In desperation, Clark set out with six men ahead of the group. He hoped to find a tribe of Native Americans who might help them, especially with food. And thankfully, after just a couple of days, the group came across the Nez Perce. The explorers were the first white men the tribe had ever seen. Lewis and the rest of the corps arrived a few days later. 
Due to the language barrier, the group took to sign language for communication. They learned that travel by water was once again possible, and the men got to work making canoes. After leaving their horses with the Nez Perce, the Corps of Discovery set out on five canoes on October 7th. By October 16th, they had reached the Columbia River. Lewis and Clark finally arrived off the Oregon coast in November of 1805. With winter closing in, the weary but joyful explorers set up camp, choosing to stay until March of 1806. As he marveled at the beauty of the Pacific, Clark carved a few words on the bark of a large pine. William Clark, December 3, 1805. The Corps of Discovery made their way back across the country in the late spring of 1806. Every town they passed through on their return journey celebrated their success, and Jefferson rewarded both of the men upon their return to Washington. In addition to his salary, Lewis received 1,600 acres of land and was given the office of governor over the Louisiana Territory. Sadly, Lewis developed a drinking problem. On October 11th of 1809, he died in Tennessee. Some say that he took his own life, while others believe that he may have actually been murdered. Clark fared much better. Jefferson appointed him an agent for Indigenous Peoples Affairs. He also ascended to the rank of Brigadier General. In 1808, he married Julia Hancock, and when Sacagawea passed away in 1812, Clark and his wife raised her children. The following year, he became the governor of the Missouri Territory. He passed away in 1838. Without Sacagawea's help, perhaps the Lewis and Clark expedition would have been different, although there are misconceptions regarding her part to play. She led the men to her place of birth, where they met up with the Shoshone, but she was not the guide for the entire expedition. Even so, her translation skills and resourcefulness and knowledge of familiar land were crucial to the expedition's success. Lewis and the other members of the Corps noted that her presence with the child helped tensions when making contact with new tribes. Warriors knew that no woman with a child would travel with a war party. It's also noted that Sacagawea helped the others become more in tune with Native Americans and to see nature a bit more from their perspective. Her part in bringing together different cultures was immeasurable. On August 14th of 1806, Sacagawea, her son, and her husband returned to the Hidatsa Mandan settlement. Three years later, Clark offered them land to farm in exchange for educating their son. Farming life didn't suit Sacagawea and Charbonneau, and they returned to fur trading. Sacagawea died in 1812 at the age of 25, near what is now present-day Bismarck, North Dakota. And while some believe that she was buried on the Wind River Reservation, where the Lemhi Shoshone tribe lived, others disagree. And as I said before, Clark took in her two children, Lisette and Pierre Baptiste. Although Jefferson instructed Lewis to take detailed notes on the people they met, Lewis never gave the same attention to Sacagawea or anyone else in the Corps for that matter. Although she is undeniably one of the key figures in American history, there exists no painting, no descriptions, and no drawings of the woman herself. Our history with the indigenous peoples of North America is obviously complex and nuanced. It's clear from the story of Lewis and Clark that their journey west would not have been possible without Native American assistance. And to be clear, they seemed grateful for that in the moment. Still, the results of that interaction are far from ideal. 
With that in mind, we've set aside one more story of exploration, complex relationships, and the pain of history. Stick around through this brief sponsor break to hear my teammate Ali Steed tell you all about it. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Daniel Boone was born in 1734 in Pennsylvania, where his parents worked as weavers and blacksmiths. As a young boy, he helped his mother tend to the cattle in the pastures, where it's said his deep love for the wilderness and the hunter's life began. Boone was an excellent marksman and frequently neglected the cows, choosing to spend his days in the woods. Numerous indigenous settlements existed within some 20 or 30 miles of his home, giving young Boone the opportunity to learn from several different tribes, and his time with them strongly influenced the remainder of his life. Deep in the forest, he also met other hunters of European descent. White and indigenous hunters taught Boone the ways of the forest, and most considered him a friend. In the spring of 1750, the Boone family moved near the Yadkin River in North Carolina. After serving in the militia during the French and Indian War, Boone returned home in the summer of 1755. A year later, he married Rebecca Bryan, and they settled in the Yadkin Valley. Over the years, the family grew. With several hungry mouths to feed, Boone disappeared for months at a time during the fall and winter to hunt for food, returning in the spring to sell his pelts to traders. While Boone hunted, his wife was left to maintain and defend the homestead and raise their children, all alone. 
1759, a group of Cherokee raided the Yadkin Valley, forcing the Boone family and many others to flee to Culpeper County, Virginia. Boone remained friends with many of his fellow militiamen, including John Findlay, a trader that told him stories about the lands beyond the Appalachians. In the fall and winter of 1767 and 68, Boone traveled across the mountains, though he never saw the areas Findlay described. Boone's relationship with many of the Cherokee people remained good, and he occasionally hunted with them while on his travels. He and a few other hunters set out for a second trip to Kentucky in May of 1769. They followed the Great Warrior's Path and crossed Appalachian ridges and valleys. Others, like Thomas Walker of the Loyal Land Company, had also made the same journey. Eventually, the hunters came upon the most famous gap in North America, the Cumberland Gap. Boone's love of the area prompted him to stay, and he didn't return home to his family until May of 1771. Determined to settle in the area beyond the Cumberland Gap, Boone convinced five other families to move with him. And in 1773, he led those families along the trails he had previously traveled. Unfortunately, Native Americans were upset by the influx of settlers taking over their lands and attacked the party, killing one of Boone's sons. Despite this tragedy, Boone continued his work in Kentucky. His explorations had gained him widespread fame and admiration, and in 1774, Judge Richard Henderson hired him to explore Kentucky and mark out a trail that became known as Wilderness Road. In 1775, Boone founded a town along the banks of the Kentucky River, which he called Boonesboro. However, local Shawnee and Cherokee tribes met this settlement with resistance. The tribes temporarily kidnapped his daughter in July of 1776, and the following year, Boone was shot during an attack, but he recovered. The Shawnee captured Boone in 1778, though he managed to escape. While on his way to buy land permits, Boone was ambushed and robbed. The settlers demanded that he repay their money, and some even sued. By 1788, Boone left Kentucky and relocated to Point Pleasant, West Virginia. There, he served as lieutenant colonel and legislative delegate of his county before moving to Missouri. During the Revolutionary War, Boone lost another son. And in 1783, as the war ended, Boone and his family moved to a settlement along the Ohio River in Limestone, Kentucky. Boone had become a legend before his death, in part thanks to author John Filson. In 1783, Filson toured Kentucky interviewing prominent men. Filson met with Boone, who happily shared his stories. The more Filson learned, the more he sensed an epic tale, certainly far grander than the guidebooks he had set out to write. With guidance from Boone and others, Filson completed his book. In the first half, Filson described Kentucky's geography, its rivers and soil and climate, and provided a detailed map. But in the second half, Filson transformed Boone's stories, enthralling readers for generations to come. Grim and Mild Presents The Wild West was executive produced by me, Aaron Mankey, and hosted by Aaron Mankey and Alexandra Steed. Writing for this season was provided by Michelle Muto, with research by Alexandra Steed, Sam Alberti, Cassandra de Alba, and Harry Marks. Fact-checking was performed by Jamie Vargas, with sensitivity reading by Stacey Partial Jensen. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about this and other shows from Grim and Mild and iHeartRadio, visit GrimAndMild.com.
right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.